We've all heard about the slow food movement, a growing or buying locally produced plants, vegetables, and fruits for your table. Well, there's also a slow flowers movement, as we'll learn about today on Kendrew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show. Deborah Prinzing is a Seattle-based outdoor living expert who writes and lectures on gardens and home design. She is a contributing editor for Better Homes and Gardens, and her feature stories appear in the home section of the Los Angeles Times. Deborah also serves as the president of the Garden Writers Association. I'm so pleased to welcome Deborah to Ken Drewsville Dirt, and congratulations on your latest book, Slow Flowers. Thank you. Good morning, Ken. It's great to be with you today. I have to tell you, reading your book and seeing the wonderful flower arrangements, I want to talk to you about so many things, <laughs> but seeing all those terrific vases and containers, uh, I, I just got overwhelmed because very recently I sent all of my pottery off to an auction house to be sold. All my McCoy and Roseville. Oh, my God. And you didn't call me first? I know. That oh, was crazy, huh? I'm heartbroken. <laughs> well, well, you must have had a big collection. I, I probably had 100 pieces. And it's it's amazing because they are worth about what I paid for them 30 years ago in not with adjusted for inflation. I mean, wow. I mean like the, the pot for five dollars, ten dollars. Uh, hmm. Unfortunately, you know, it had that big boom and I should have unloaded it then. But I didn't. I remember when Roseville was like three or four figures. So Ama it's amazing. Yeah. And it. Anyway, so well, here's here's the reason I got so interested in American pottery is that I'm focusing on American grown flowers. And it just seems so fitting to not use some crappy glass vase from China. It, it just doesn't fit. You know, we need to have this sort of Americana mindset. So everybody has an old, you know, inexpensive vase or urn from, you know, great aunt so and so or grandmother or mother. So the, the dust them off and put your flowers in them. Well, but we shouldn't make people think that's all you, you can do because you have arranged so many arrangements in your, your new book, Slow Flowers, and they're in all sorts of containers. And I know yes. I know that you can find something between a mason jar, if people still have those, <laughs> to an old olive oil tin or something and make beautiful arrangements. So how did you get into the whole idea of, of Slow Flowers? And what is uh, it? Well, Slow Flowers is... Um was picked up by the media last year when the 50 mile bouquet came out and it kind of makes sense because they both those terms the 50 mile bouquet and slow flowers are kind of pulling off of what's happening in the culinary world mm -hmm. with you know the 100 mile diet and the slow food movement so it, i think that especially you know people in the who are foodies understand what that means and right. i think gar gardeners do too but and while i was interviewing a lot of flower farmers and eco floral designers I sort of felt this challenge uh, pushed back at me from editors and um, publishers who maybe looked at me as a West Coast person and said, oh, that's fine if you live in Southern California. You can have beautiful bouquets 12 months of the year. But, you know, what if you're in a colder climate? Um, even Seattle. I mean, I've got twigs and conifers as my palate in the winter. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, I'm going to show them. I'm going to make a bouquet every week for a year using what's in my own garden or what I procure from local farmers um, who are growing seasonally. And um, <clears throat> I started the first week of November. So, I mean, it was kind of the <laughs> most ridiculous time to start. And I got through a wonderful year of just being observant and in tune with my own 
garden, which is a small garden. It's, it's a city lot in Seattle. And um, it was a great experience. And it really, it's almost like I was a chef saying, I'm only going to prepare meals from what the kitchen garden produces in any season. It was a really great experience just to, to prove to myself it can be done. Well, you know, I think it's even easier than that because I think that one can find things to cut in every month of the year in just about any garden. And it's surprising. You, you think, oh, there's nothing out there. And then if you look really closely, there's some wonderful twig that's all twisty or, or berries on something. And as you said, evergreens too. And and don't forget things that are dry. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing is I did have some cheats, and I want to encourage people to allow themselves some cheats, <laughs> in that I, uh, some of the farmers that I, um, <clears throat> that I support in my area, in Oregon and Washington and Northern California, they have season extension methods of hoop houses and high tunnels, um, you know, so that they maybe are getting some crops earlier than they would if they were field grown or keeping them blooming after the first frost because they're sheltered. And um, that was a wonderful lesson for me to realize that, you know, they're even on the commercial growing side, farmers are trying to produce something that's, um, you know, a beautiful ingredient, you know, outside of just the conventional field grown method. Well, it's, it's wonderful that you're supporting them and in, including them, but uh, I shouldn't say but and. <laughs> uh, you, you won't shy away from taking a house plant and sticking it into an arrangement, too. And I don't mean cutting its head off. I mean, just putting the whole pot in there and making an arrangement with different containers that might hold some cut flowers or dried twigs, as I said. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that you identify I think you identify every single thing that's in every single picture, and the pictures are wonderful. Well, and I took them myself. Can you believe it? I, I know. I was wow. going to talk to you about that. <laughs> you know, um, it's, I've worked with a lot of amazing photographers who shoot incredible landscapes um, that I've learned a lot from them. I'm not at that level, but a tripod and a camera and a vase of flowers on a table, that is doable for me. And that's, that's about what this, you know, th- this book allowed me to do. Um, but I used natural light, and I shot the whole array of in and around my home and garden. So it was very personal. Then um, that was fun. But I did. I you know I'm a gardener, and and I gardeners want to know the cultivars, and they want to know if if Deborah didn't grow it, who, who did she get it from, and how to reach that person. And um, you know I think that that's a useful takeaway for people. You're so right, and as we used to say, well, it's funny that takeaway is the new phrase for service, which is was the new phrase for how to. <laughs> but uh, I mean, we're in the same world. I, I I hear those phrases too. Yeah, you, you want it. I mean, you want to know. You want because and you can't find a plant unless you have the accurate name. And uh, we know that editors mm-hmm. and publishers don't understand any of that, and they they just as soon say posy. <laughs> when we want to say scabiosa stellata, you know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it's it's fun because um, the when I give talks at nurseries, I just go through and pull all the plants that are in the book, and then people can see what the action... Because in the vase, you just see maybe the leaf or a little sprig of something or a flower, but, you know, it's also very helpful to see what the plant looks like, mm-hmm. you know, in its form and habit and maybe what its mature size is going to be. I mean, you've got to take all those into consideration. Well, the book is filled with 
flower arrangements and they're really wonderful flower arrangements and as you said you're a gardener and you're a writer and now you're a photographer and how did you become a flower arranger I know. I channeled my inner florist, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, Ken, my undergraduate degree is in textiles, and I, I was raised by quilters. My mother and grandmother were quilters, and I, I've always uh, paralleled quilting with gardening because I, my, my mother would have all these intricate combinations of the big, flashy, you know, polka dot and the tiny pin dot, and, like, they would all balance out, and kind of it's how I learned you know, how proportion and, and scale and pattern all work together. And so now that's all moved into a tiny garden in a vase. <laughs> and, um, you know, all those principles of design have played into this micro, you know, this little microcosm uh, vessel. So um, I think design is design. And I, we're mimics, you know, we, we gardeners, we, we see something we like and we try to recreate it. And so, you know, after interviewing amazing floral designers and looking over their shoulders at how their techniques um, are used, you know, I kind of was able to embrace that and, and hopefully put my own stamp on it. I have a little bit of a casual look. I'm not a, I'm not a avant-garde dart designer at all. I really like to get all those plant textures together and have it tell a story. And I think these are all little stories. Well, I, I hope people don't think casual is <laughs> slapdash in any way. Uh, no, I, I, mean, I might you know, say informal. informal. Yes. <laughs> we always are mirroring each other, I'm afraid. Yeah, wordsmiths. But yeah, I mean, it's. I think that there's some techniques of using, making hand-tied bouquets or techniques of um, um, using a matrix of twigs that kind of holds certain flowers in place. And I try to cover all those in the technique section so that um, people know they don't have to use Oasis, which is the florist green block of foam that I'm like completely put a big red X over it. I will not use it. And I hope people realize it's, it's not an earth-friendly product. Well, it's great that you, you're talking about the technique section because, uh, and I'm going to have you actually tell us what a, a hand-tied bouquet is in a second, but you have the important things. For, and I don't know if you call it conditioning, but you actually tell people something that they, if they're interested in cutting things from their garden, they should know uh, that'll be helpful, that plants will, flowers will last longer. And, you know, when we buy flowers, uh, especially if we don't buy them from the greatest source, they mm -hmm. sometimes they don't, they last like a day and a half. But if you mm -hmm. know a few little things about cutting, recutting them and recutting them as often as you can. Uh, but when you cut plants from parts of plants and flowers from your own garden, you want to do it early in the morning when they're full of moisture and when it's a little bit cool and soak them up to their necks. And that, I think that's the biggest thing that a lot of people don't know that, and we call that conditioning, but that really right. will have them fill up with moisture and last so much longer. Well, and I think that we're, con we're sort of trained sadly to expect a lot from our flowers, but our, the medium we're working with is maybe something wrapped in cellophane from the supermarket. Mm -hmm. And who knows how long that's been out of the field. If they're imported, they've been out of the field for seven days. And so that we have these low expectations for cut flowers, but it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and when we cut in the morning and arrange in the afternoon, and we're going to get at least a week enjoyment out of those flowers, um, you know, especially by trial and error. Certainly there's some garden plants that are not happy in the vase. I think of my Japanese anemone. I want to cut it and have it in my vase so badly, but it is like the most 
you know, distressed thing the minute you <laughs> in a vase. Um, so that's, you know, that means I use their seed heads, and the seed heads are cool, but the petals aren't happy. Um, but my latest thing that I've been saying to people when they're, you know, I'll give talks and some, someone will always raise their hand and say, well, how long will these flowers last in a vase, these ones you're using, Deborah? And I put my hand on my hip and I pause for a minute and I say, how long do you expect to enjoy a farm-to-table meal when you go out to your favorite restaurant? Mm. And people are like, I don't know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. I said, so we, we're happy when our food makes us, gives us pleasure for 45 minutes, but somehow we want our flowers to give us pleasure. Another plant material, basically, um, you know, for a week. And so let's, let's adjust our expectations and live in the moment and, um, you know, not give flowers a bad rap. So that's my sermon for the day. Well, I'm, I'm hearing you and I'm thinking even how that could extend to gardens because uh, there's the, the whole, unfortunately, the, I could call it, I guess, the corporate view of gardens, which is get the garden done in no time. Mm-hmm. And they, and horticulture is just, it just isn't considered art, but people will go have a half hour lunch and consider that art. And I'm not putting down the chefs at all. I, I'm no. hoping or to... they'll go to the art museum for two hours and call it a day, you know, and that that's good enough for them. But we, so... we want to tell people as often as we can that this is something that you can do forever. As long as you can get out there, you can garden. And just as we're saying, as long as you can get out there, you can cut something from the garden to make an arrangement. So why do you think it's so important to support American and even local flower farmers? I really, um, I didn't realize the story of what's happening in the American cut flower industry until I got deeper into these reporting projects and, and you know, be from a documentary sort of journalistic project with the 50 Mob okay, to something more personal like Slow Flowers. And um, I have to say that Many of us read Flower Confidential, which Amy Stewart wrote in mm-hmm. 2007, I think. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the trigger for me to raise my awareness of what's happening on the sort of global floriculture industry, which is a multi-billion dollar industry in which flowers are grown as commodities in countries where there's inexpensive labor and perhaps... Uh, Few restrictions on yeah on chemical use exactly like less stringent uh, environmental restrictions right and then all this jet fuel is used to ship this product this perishable product to Miami and then all this perishable product is put on trucks and the trucks drive to New York or they drive to L A or they drive to Seattle and it, and it's all for a perishable good which some people would argue is a luxury good I you and I wouldn't but you know in a way people think oh that's it's it's definitely not a necessity. And it just seems like a bad way to be stewards of this earth. And so that's sort of one aha that I've had. And then the other thing is that we, you know, we want to preserve farmland. We want to preserve family farms. We want to see, um, you know, our rural areas thrive economically. And none of those are going to happen if we don't support American farmers. And I'm not talking about just flowers, you know, in any any crop that we need. So now that I've gotten to meet these farmers and know how passionate they are about the crops they grow, um, and they work hard, Ken, you know, they're working 16 hour days, um, and selling, you know, they're selling their flowers for less than a dollar a stem. And I, I just admire them greatly and I want to support them. And, um, I think that this American grown flower movement is really taking off. And I saw it as particularly at Valentine's day where, 
some of our big eco natural grocery stores in this country, I won't name names, but they were, they were promoting imported roses. Mm -hmm. And I started blogging about it and several other people did too. And there was a bit of a pushback like, hey, why aren't you promoting American grown roses? There are still farmers on the commercial level, especially in California and Oregon, growing beautiful roses. Why aren't we promoting those? Um, and so I think this, we're going to see a little bit of a needle, the needle move a little bit. Imports are not going away, but uh, there's, they account for 80% of the cut flowers sold in the U.S. I think okay. we, can make, we can have more of an equal 50-50 you know, balance. I would be happy with that. Well, and, and it's not, you're not being xenophobic. You're not just, uh, you know, because as you know, when I write about native plants, I get attacked sometimes. <laughs> Less often now, but I have, my favorite was being called a, a Nazi in the New York Times many years ago because I... Oh my God. I, I hope you framed that. <laughs> I should have. I won't tell you who wrote that. <laughs> Someone you know. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, uh, yeah, you, you have to go out on a limb and make a, make a statement, and then, and then you shake things up a little bit, and people aren't happy with that. Because you're challenging their conventions when you, you know, may, perhaps make a statement about native plants. And I, I know I, I, per, I perhaps challenge people's you know, sentiments about helping you know, um, developing countries. And the whole fair trade movement and all. Yeah, yeah, I think that's all important. But as one of my farmers said, hey, I'd like my children to have free dental care and, you know, free education. Like some of these, you know, South American farms are claiming that they provide their workers. But, hey, I'm an American farmer. I don't have access to those benefits. You know, I can barely afford health insurance. So, you know, I want to help those people. I want to buy their product and um, celebrate what they're doing. Oh, boy. <laughs> I know. Who thought that flowers would be so geopolitical? Well, I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, and as you're even talking, I, I I think that when you say, when I said to you support American flower farmers, I think local is even more important just I because of the traveling, the the petroleum that's used to ship these things. The the closer to home, the better. Absolutely. And the, my kind of, you know, rings of, of concentric circles is, you know, you're, you're the five-step bouquet is your backyard. That's where you should start. Um, <clears throat> that's what's really going to bring beauty and, and creativity and a personal relationship uh, with what grows in nature and in, in our lives. The next ring would be, you know, supporting a, a farmer's market grower who you see every week. Or um, <laughs> there's a whole movement called, you know, flower foraging, which is you know, I, I, I encourage flower foraging with permission. Mm. Uh, so, you know, neighbors and fields and, you know, I'm up here in Napa Valley and I drove by this uh, two miles of Banksia roses at the out edge of a winery. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm sure if I snipped a few of these, they would never notice. But I, it's tempting, but you have to ask permission. So, you know, foraging is in that spectrum too. And then the farthest ring is if you can't find it locally or if, for example, where you live in New Jersey in the dead of winter and you, you know, would really like to have some beautiful fragrant rose for a special, you know, event, maybe you can source from a California farmer rather than a South American, you know, importer. And I mean, it's just, it's all degrees of sustainability. Well, I'm, we all I mentioned the 
the hand, the bouquet in your hand. I'm going to say, just describe that incredibly fast because I want to ask you a few more things and we're running out of time. But of course, we've all done this and whether, and probably people have done it whether they know it or not. And when they Mm -hmm. go out and pick and you arrange some flowers in your hand and hold them in your left hand and then when it looks good and you want it, the way and it looks the way you'd like it in a vase you know you don't have to rearrange them when you get inside you can just snip them all at the same length and tie them and and there you have your bouquet and in the the book you describe different uh, geometric relationships and the numbers of flowers and the colors a lot a lot on color and actually one of my favorite arrangements in the book is the chocolate and vanilla arrangement oh i'm glad you like that it's sort of you know it's kind of monochromatic but oh boy oh, that's what i like about it yeah, i know that anthriscus is crazy isn't it yep it's sort of uh sepia ish it's not really mm-hmm. but it's almost black and white in tones and it's really beautiful but as the president of the garden writers association or garden writers of america uh i i just have to ask you what you what your take on the future is you know you and i both have been lucky enough to still write books and people still buy them but uh i mean what does a writer do so many writers are saying oh it's fine i'm writing my blog and i'm talking about making a living here not just (laughs) not just writing for your own enjoyment it's a challenge you know we both have focused on younger people i know you just had that amazing article in um was it or, uh, organic, organic gardening? gardening yeah. And oh my gosh, it, you know, I feel the same way. I get as excited as, as you did when I meet 20 something floral designers. I, I'm like, okay, th- this industry may be changing. There's no more brick and mortar flower, flower shops, but there are young 20 something people who want to grow and design with flowers. So I feel like, you know, that's, that gives me hope. On the, on the writing side, I don't know the answer, Ken. I, I really. I think, you know, communications is changing so rapidly in every uh, arena and, um, you know, decent paying journalism jobs are disappearing and publications are falling by the wayside. Mm -hmm. And you really have to be, a friend of mine described it, a a kind of a mosaic career. You have to have a mosaic career in garden communications of some speaking and some teaching and some writing for compensation and hopefully some writing that's more personal and perhaps more fulfilling that might lead to, you know, hopefully money someday. Um, and, you know, just, you know, I know a lot of garden writers who are doing landscape design now um, because that is a way more lucrative than writing an article, you know, for $75 or something. Personally, for me, what's, what's saving me is that I'm crossing over into non gardening audiences. I write for Costco magazine. I write for Alaska Airlines magazine. I'm trying to write about my favorite topics, but for a general interest audience, um, which doesn't mean I'm getting an assignment every month, but I'm starting to develop diversity. um, So I'm not stuck in this, you know, tiny little world that, you know, you and I see shrinking. So I don't want to be negative. I, I'm trying to be positive, but I think of where I was 16 or 17 years ago when I started out, and I look at somebody uh, maybe who's that age now, and I think they have all the, they have in their toolbox all those social media tech skills that I struggle with, and I think that people are finding their way with different platforms. But it's it's definitely a patchwork quilt of uh, of income i mean i don't want to i don't want to be any more positive than that well quilting it comes back to quilting (laughs) (laughs) 
I've well, I tried that mosaic motif, but I think quilting's right. more relevant. <laughs> I've been speaking with Deborah Prinzing, who is the author of yet another wonderful book, a little book that would, if you can't give someone flowers, you might give them this book. That's <laughs> right, Slow Flowers. Slow Thank Flowers, you. and uh, it's charming, and your other books are all wonderful, and you are someone that we all should be following and I do. And thank you so much for joining me today. It was great. I loved talking flowers with you. Deborah mentioned that her previous book, The 50 Mile Bouquet, Seasonal, Local, and Sustainable Flowers, came out in 2012. And I know so many people who were moved by that work with its beautiful photographs and visits with growers from around the country and shows how people are growing flowers the way people are now growing food for farmers markets, uh, even to sell at local florists. And uh, not only can you buy those flowers from local farmers, you can also grow your own. And the new book, Slow Flowers, has photographs by Deborah of many, many arrangements that will inspire the flower arrangements that you might want to make at home. Please join me again next week for another edition of Kendrew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show, when I hope to bring you another guest. See you then.